This is a message from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. We pray that it will encourage you in your walk of faith. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Youssef or Leading the Way, please visit ltw.org. What I want to share with you today, and probably the very thing that has impacted my life, the very verse upon which my ministry, my call to the ministry, my, my whole outlook on life is built. And from that verse, uh, it takes me to a life of a person, and that life of that individual in the Scripture has literally been a guide to me, other than, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. But this man of God in the Bible uh, is a man that, uh, whose life I studied very, very closely because it's so much ministered to me personally. And uh, I grew up in Egypt, as some of you look at me, and uh, if you did not uh, know me, you would wonder if I'm a sunburned Swede. I... <laughs> with that kind of funny accent. But I was born in Egypt. Uh, We grew up in a Coptic minority, Christian minority that's been in the country there for uh, 2,000 years. In fact, uh, the Jews who were in the day of Pentecost from Alexandria, if you read in the book of Acts, there were Jews from Alexandria in Jerusalem, and they heard the gospel preached by Peter. They came back to Alexandria, and they brought the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then spread throughout the land. And within a matter of a short period of time, 85% of the population were Christians. And the first theological seminary in the world was in Alexandria. So um, the 10 million or so surviving Copts, that's my ancestors, had a history, tenacious history of holding on to the truth of the Scripture. Even when heresies came and go and said, the Scripture, the canon is not closed, and God still speaks with the same authority as He spoke in the Bible. Those faithful ancestors of mine said, no, absolutely not. The Bible is closed, and God has spoken, and uh, no word that can be equal to it. Uh, so I grew up as a minority in a, a nation of, uh, um, of Muslims, sizable minority nonetheless. Uh, grew up in an evangelical home. My uh, father and my mother loved the Lord, and they always had the family altar uh, at home at night. And uh, no matter where we are, we had to come home for the family altar. And uh, I was number seven in a family of eight. My older siblings are all very successful, done very well for themselves. Before I was born, uh, my mother began to suffer some ill health. And uh, the doctor said, you have to have an abortion. Three doctors, one German, one American, one Egyptian, they all said, you have to have an abortion. Your health will not survive this birth. But the pastor of our church saw a vision, five o'clock in the morning, came knocked on the door the day that she was going to have the abortion. And uh, as a result, she was a woman of prayer, and she prayed for hours every day. She went along and uh, literally risked her life to have me. So I grew up knowing that story later on, as, uh, and, and I realized that God called me to a ministry. I did not know what it was. But I knew that it's not going to be a mediocre ministry. I don't believe in mediocrity. It's just uh, it's a waste of our time as children of the living God. Uh, we are told by the Apostle Paul in Ephesus to the epistle to the Ephesians, that the very power of Jesus that raised Jesus from the dead is working in us. And that has always been going through my mind. But if I'm going to serve the Lord, well, how and who, what, where? And here's the verse that really began to impact my life. It's in James chapter 5, verses 16 
and 17. And here's what James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, said. He said, Elijah was a man like unto us, but he prayed for the rain to stop, and it stopped raining. And he prayed for rain to come down, and it came down. And I've often asked myself, when I began to find this verse, to literally internalize it deep into my heart, and and I would read it, and I would read it over and over and over again. And I would ask people, you know, what does James mean by this? Uh, that Elijah was just man like unto us, and but he prayed for it not to rain, it did not rain. And then he prayed for it, and it rained, and it rained. I always got two reactions. I got one reaction that says, well, God doesn't answer prayer like this anymore. The second reaction is he only answered prayers of super spiritual people. And I kept saying, but James said he was a man like unto us. There's got to be a reason why he said he was just a man like unto us. There's got to be a reason why he was getting us to identify with him. And uh, I basically came to the conclusion that both reactions are wrong because uh, the problem with most of us is that we just don't take the time to find out why and how and when does God answer prayers like that. He was a man like unto us, period. It's very important. So I spent a great deal of my time in my life, in my ministry, studying Elijah. And then I wrote a book on it. And in fact, I identified my own life journey with that of Elijah. Not that I'm ever claimed to be a prophet. Don't misunderstand me. But I identified with him, with his struggle. I identified with his pain. I identified with his confusion at times when God absolutely did not make sense in his life. I identified with all of the things that this man of God went through. And I hope some of you will identify with that. And then you come out of this time, truly, with a renewed vision for who the Lord is and who you are in the Lord and what the Lord can do in order to bless you and to bless your ministries, whatever it may be, and to bless your spiritual gifts, which I know that every one of you has one. One of the things you're going to see in, this, in these studies is that Elijah was not really a super spiritual. <laughs> he was not a super spiritual in the sense that we understand. He wasn't even super spiritual like his successor, Elisha, was. And um, you'll see him scared and frightened. You'll see him doubting and defeated in his life. You're going to see him, in other words, a man just like James said, like us. He experienced fear. He experienced pain. He experienced confusion. He experienced doubt. In fact, this whole discussion for those four sessions we're going to spend together are going to be a time to learn more about God than Elijah. We're going to learn about how God really works and what honors God and what does not honor Him. And so God works in this one man's life in order to teach us how He works in your life and in my life. Elijah pops up from nowhere. No background, no family tree, no string of degrees after his name that he can brag about. It's like somebody was telling me after I got a PhD, and he said, don't ever get haughty because all it stands for is pile higher and deeper. And that really put me, 
put me in my place. I, uh, I try not to use it ever since. <laughs> no qualifications. No explanations. He just pops up out of nowhere. And here's what I really want to share with you today. I want to communicate this to you today. That if you want to make a difference for God in your life, it's better to understand how God works. It is better to understand that what really impresses people does not impress God. Now, we have this idea that if we do, you know, if if something really impresses a large number of people, God must be impressed. (laughs) That what moves people, not necessarily is what moves God and the heart of God. The way we judge people is not necessarily the way God judges people. So God does not judge us, does not see us the way people do. God has a really whole different set of criterion by which he judges us. And he qualifies his people to do his work, to be effective in their homes and churches and everywhere they go. One of the stories that uh, again impacted my life I read many years ago was that of Oliver Cromwell, who was in charge of the Treasury of England. And they ran out of the silver mint uh, coinage uh, for the realm and the empire. And uh, Cromwell sent people out to find silver. He said, we need silver to make coins, to to keep the economy going. And uh, they came back and they said to him, he said, the only silver we can find in the whole, the breadth and the width of Britain, is the silver that is in the statues that are in the cathedrals. Which gave rise to the famous statement by Oliver Cromwell. He said, well... We're just going to have to melt the saints and put them into circulation. (laughs) And I am convinced from my own personal experience and from the life of God's people in the Scripture, I'm convinced that before God can use his man or his woman, God has to melt them down. That before God can put his saints into circulation, he's got to melt them down. One of my favorite verses that a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. And I'm never afraid of brokenness. In fact, it's the times and brokenness in my life is the times, are the times when I've grown in Christ. The times when everything was humming. The times when I'm not really growing. And so I can tell you truthfully this day that many of the saints have been sitting in the pews and not being melted in this country. And I'm convinced in my own heart that if the believers in America would really become broken before God, we can literally not change this, just change this country, we can change the world. I am convinced of this as I am convinced of standing before you today. That so many believers have been sitting in the pews of salvation for so long, taking and taking and listening and taking and listening, and never tested God to do great and mighty things, which He wants wants us to. And wants us to ask him to do it. God is not able to use us. God is not able to make us effective. God is not able. Not because he can't. He just said there are certain things you have to do. Before I can use you. Before I can make you effective. For my kingdom. You see when we are self-satisfied. And when we are comfortable in our being statues in cathedrals. Instead of being silver coins in circulation. God 
cannot use us. And the reason God was able to use men like Elijah, a man like us, had his own weaknesses and own failures, women like Esther, is because they put everything on the line and they said, okay, even life, it's up to the Lord. They were willing to step forward. They're willing to get out of their comfort zone and be sold out for Christ. They were willing to be used of God. They're willing to be melted down. King Ahab was probably not only the, the most wicked king in Israel, but probably the biggest wimp. And in addition to his wickedness, he, he was married to a woman more wicked than he was. Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon, that's modern-day Lebanon. And they worshipped Baal. Ahab, the king of Israel, married her. But there was another problem. Jezebel had a mind that was superior to that of her husband. Jezebel actually had an intensity that was superior to her husband. She was a better strategist than her husband. Jezebel had more drive than her husband. In fact, Jezebel would, would have ran for office of president if she got the chance. But she may have been the first lady, but in reality, behind the scenes, she was the president. Some have named Jezebel the Lady Macbeth of the Bible. And Ahab thought that he knew better than his fathers. So instead of obeying the command of God and marrying a godly Jewish girl, he went and married a Lebanese girl, a Phoenician girl, who was worshiping Baal. I'm assuming probably when they were dating, he probably rationalized it in his, you know, rationalized his disobedience, as I meet some Christians all over the world who rationalized their disobedience. And probably Ahab, when he was dating her, uh, he was saying, man, wouldn't that be great when Israel gets a new convert? And, uh, but the reality is she converted him. You know, what I've seen in my 30 years ministry, when people, well, they can do whatever they want to do with their lives, but the truth is, whenever they break the Scripture, command of being unequally yoked, they have to pay a price for it, and they do pay a price for it. Well, in fact, Paul was not suggesting that we should not be unequally yoked. Paul was merely telling us what the whole Bible said. And Ahab would have known that from the Old Testament and the Old Testament teaching. And uh, Jezebel was an intense worshiper of Baal. That is the God of the Phoenicians, the God of the country of her father. And Baal, in the Bible, was the symbol of Satan. And so she literally brought the worship of Satan into the very land of of God, to the people of God. Instead of destroying Baal and Baal worshipers, they allowed them to run rampant in the White House of that day. And that's why Israel lost its commission to being a light to the nations for the time being, because of that disobedience. May God forbid that we would lose our commission that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us because of our disobedience. Baal was the god of power without righteousness. Baal was the god of lust without love. Baal was a, an amoral and immoral god. Baal was like the force in uh, Empire Strikes Back. Baal 
had a bad side and a good side. And people most of the time did not know which side they were dealing with. He was the God of confusion, just like the devil. And I want to tell you something at the outset. One of the things that I've learned in ministry and in my own walk with the Lord is that really there's a little bale in every one of us. That's constantly trying to set up a beachhead and constantly expand that beachhead in our lives. There's a little shrine in all of us. And I believe the Scripture would say to us today, you need to deal with it. You know what the little bales are in your life as I know in mine. God doesn't want us to pray about it. God doesn't want us to fast about it. God does not want us to read books about it. No, God wants us to deal with it. He doesn't want us to understand it. He doesn't want us to be counseled about it. He wants us to deal with it. Absolutely, God wants us to exterminate it, just as He commanded His people to do, and they did not do. You know what it is. I know what it is in my own life. To some, as I have counseled many, it's a lust that cannot be conquered. To others, it's a lying spirit where they have difficulty telling the truth. It may be a habit that needs to be overcome. It may be a relationship that has no place in your life. Whatever it may be, you know it. God's finger will point it, pointed to it. Deal with it. Destroy it. And if you do what Israel did and keep on tolerating it in your life and keep on feeding it, flirting with it, it could prove to be your undoing. You see, little bales in our lives are like a gas leak. So I use this illustration with our staff on a regular basis. I said, you know, when you hear about a preacher falling, when you hear about a Christian leader falling, it did not happen overnight. It's like a gas leak that is dripping one drop at a time. And then one day, a spark is lit, and then you see, we see the fire. But for a long time, there's a gas leak that is taking place. And it is our daily commitment to the Lord as a team is that there will be no gas leaks in our lives so that we will stand as pure servants of the living God. For years, the Israelites flirted with Baal. For years, they flirted with Baal worshipers. But when Jezebel was married to Ahab, the king of Israel. That spark was lit, and the nation literally plunged into immorality. Elijah, the man of God who came from nowhere, whose name means Jehovah is my God, is given an awesome task of confronting immorality and compromise in Israel. I tell you, I wouldn't be in his place for anything but I would be in his place in a moment's notice if what God calls me to be. And I believe that should be the cry of every one of us. How did God tell him to do it? Well, it's a huge task. It's an awesome task. Elijah confronts the evil society by confronting the leadership. Like a fish that rots from the head, society rots from the head. Elijah looked at Ahab and he said, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years 
except by my word. Powerful words. And then the Lord said to Elijah, Okay, Elijah, now that you have delivered the message, go and hide. (laughs) Go and hide in the brook, by the brook of Cherith, or some people say Cherith, but it really Cherith is more accurate, east of the Jordan. He said, you will drink from that brook, and I will order the ravens to feed you there. Before I tell you about the the command of the Lord and and how confusing that was, (laughs) um, the word dew, it's very important. You would say, rain we understand, but why dew? In the morning, there's this, the dew that uh, comes across the land. And in Israel, the dew here might not be important, I don't know. But in Israel, I know that this kind of layer of about one-fiftieth of a dew in the morning uh, that coats the grass and coats the plants is of vital importance. It's just as important there as the rain. And if it were not for the dew, there would be no vegetation, uh, and everything literally would die. And that is why, if you're looking at the passage and said, well, I can understand the rain, why is it dew? But the man of God said, there will be no dew or rain for years. Why? To prove that Jehovah is the living God, not the Baal of the Phoenicians. And I can imagine the old, <laughs> the old queen and the king and the members of the court and the, and the prophets of Baal. Here is this guy who comes in, looks like a yahoo, and he points his finger at the king and he says, Now, king, <laughs> there shall be no rain or dew for years until I say so. <laughs> and then he takes off. And I imagine the conversation that took place after that. Who is this Yahoo? Where did this politically incorrect guy come from? <laughs> but after a while, they were not laughing because it came to pass. Amen. They weren't laughing. In fact, they were sending out an APB for Elijah. Find him! Search for him! But they couldn't. And the reason they couldn't find him is because God was hiding him. God was hiding him. You see, when God hides you, you're hidden. I don't know about you, but I know I've been in God's hidden programs. (laughs) And I know that when He hid me, I hid. I really hid good. When He protects you, He protects you. When God shelters you, He shelters you. When He shields you, He shields you. And nobody can touch you. And God commanded Elijah to hide. And I say, Lord, how can you call a man to public ministry? How do you call a man to take the all-important message to the king? And then you say, okay, now you delivered your message, go and hide. (laughs) How can you do that, Lord? You call him, and then you tell him to hide. Well, I don't want you to miss this. It's important. It's confusing at times. God's hiding places are always place of preparation for the next step. Always, God's hiding places are the places of protection for greater service. I have no doubt in my mind. I have absolutely no doubt as I'm standing here that Elijah was perplexed. You can see it in the text. He was a prophet. He was a preacher. He was a leader. And yet God said, leave here, go eastward, and hide yourself. This no doubt, was a 
perplexing command. But because God said it, it was a purposeful command. Whenever God is preparing a woman or man for great things, invariably he sends them into a hiding place. Joseph, the favorite son, was hidden in the pit, then was hidden in Potiphar's house, then he was hidden in the prison before he could become the prime minister of Egypt. Moses, from the luxury of Pharaoh's palaces to the desert, hidden from view so God can use him. Esther was hidden from view before she was able to save a nation. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself, for 30 years in Nazareth, he was hidden before publicly proclaimed the Messiah. Paul, after an encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he had to be hidden in the northern Arabian, actually most people believe it's Petra in Jordan, where he spent three years. Is there a word from the Lord to each of us today? Well, yes. To the young mom, whose life is seemed to be hidden from view, her life that seemed, her responsibility seemed to revolve around changing diapers, feeding. It's providence hiding her so that she can impact the life of her children. What is God saying? He may be hiding you for a duration, but He's hiding you for some great things. Is there someone who's shut in and feels that God is hiding them? Well, He's hiding them for a purpose. There are some people whom God hides in their job, and they long to make a change, and they want to get out of their situation. And I get people coming to me all the time and said, I want to discern the will of God. I said, what do you want to discern about the will of God? What's the next step in my life? I said, well, why do you want to know the next step in your life? Because he said, I'm miserable where I am. I said, how did you know that God does not want you to be exactly where you are? God is keeping you there for a purpose. God, when He's ready to get you to move, He will make it clear for you to move. Some people may be single people who want to be married, and they feel hidden sitting there by the brook of Cherith, asking, why am I here? God is hiding you there for a purpose. Some of you probably are hidden in your place of business, and you're wondering why your business is not going anywhere. Why is not moving ahead? God is hiding you to keep you from trouble, but also He's working for your best for the next step. He's hiding you there for a purpose. And God will hide you somewhere in the short run until you are ready and prepared for the next step that He has for you. And so God commands his servant Elijah. He said, after he goes in there, proclaims to the king, he said, there shall be no rain until I say so. And then God says, okay, now go and hide. The hidden times in our lives, the hidden times in my life, are most, most difficult times, the most perplexing times. But as I look back, I see that they were purposeful times. I did not at the time. I did not see the purpose of God. I remember one time crying to the Lord, Why am I hidden from view? I was hidden in the seminary years. Then I knew that God called me for preaching ministry. But then I was hidden from view for eight years in an administrative job. 
I was serving, but I was hidden completely in a task that is not my giftedness. But God was hiding me for those eight years for a purpose. I could not see it at the time, but I look back and I see that while it was perplexing on my part, it was purposeful on his part. And now I look back and I would never trade it for anything else. As I look back and see the hand of God and his purpose working out in my life. God wants every one of us to be at some point in our lives in this, by the brook, the Cherith brook. Why? Because only there that God can work his purposes out. Only there. There, when you are in your Cherith, only God can talk to you. Only God can reach you. And those of you who have been by the brook know how unreachable you could have been, except through God, that God is the only one who could reach down to you. Because there, there is no one to cheer you up. Whether you're there emotionally, whether you're there psychologically, whether you're there spiritually, there, no one to cheer you up. No book can help you. And you can read all the books you want. No one, no friend that you can relate to. And there, Elijah, at the bottom of the ravine east of the Jordan, sat in this desolate place. There's nothing but rocks and trees and dripping water. But don't underestimate those three things. The rocks reminded him of the Rock of Ages. And the trees reminded him and taught him what the psalmists have said, that the tree that's planted by the living water is the tree that will be producing fruit. And the dripping water taught him that from his innermost being will flow rivers of water. But God also does an inward work when you are in your cherith. Something happened inwardly in Elijah's life when he was in God's hiding place. Do you want to know how I know that? Do you want to know how I know that? Well, in verse 1, it says, he simply says, actually, uh, he was just called Elijah the Tishabite. Then on verse 24, the widow of Zarephath says, I know that you are a man of God. God had already done something inwardly in his life. First, he was just Elijah the Tishabite. That's all he is. But then after God had dealt with him, this woman testified and said, You are a man of God. And God can do something inwardly in your life when you are in his hiding place. What did God do? Well, God was basically peeling off the layers until he got down to the real Elijah. Layer after layer, just like peeling an onion. It was peeling one layer after another until he got to the real Elijah. Some of you may be trying to hold on to these layers in your life that God is trying to peel off. And you're holding tenaciously on it. But God desires to get to the real you. And the only way he can get to the real you is by peeling those layers. 
Because God is not interested of what you project who you are. He's not interested in your perception or perceptions of others of who you are. God is not interested in the public you. God is interested in the inward you. He's not interested in the outward you. He's interested in the inward you. Not many years ago, I heard a story about a young man who went to visit a holy man, a a godly monk. And he heard about this man for many years. And finally, he went up to the monastery and sat down and began to talk to the man. He said, what do you do all day? What do you do? do?" He said, well, I am constantly actually wrestling. He said, oh, you wrestle with the devil. He said, no, 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 I don't wrestle with the devil. I wrestle with God. And the guy said, you wrestle with God? Why are you hoping to win? He said, no, 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 you don't understand. I wrestle with God so that I can lose. And this old monk got it right, because that's what Jacob did in the valley of the Jabbok. He was wrestling with God until he lost. And Elijah at the, at the brook, he was wrestling with God until he lost. And only then can you expect God to bless you when you lose. You see, Ted Turner many years ago said, Christianity is a religion for the losers. And I actually thought he was right. I mean, the, many of the Christian media were taking him on. How can you do this? How can you say that? I said, he's absolutely right. I think the guy had more spiritual insight than, than people crediting him. Jesus said, if you lose your life, you gain it. <laughs> we are losers. And we wrestle with God, not to win, but to lose. And therefore, we are losers, as far as the world is concerned. Because we want to lose to God. We want God to win. And he'll win through us. And only then can Elijah really move from being just Elijah the Tishabite to being the man of God. So this command to Elijah was a perplexing command. But it was also a purposeful command. But then there was a place of provision. Wherever you are in God's hiding place, you can be sure of God's provision. He doesn't take you anywhere where he does not protect you. God provided Elijah with the most unusual catering service. And it was two ways. It was natural and it was supernatural. Verse 4, 1 Kings 17, he said, Drink from the brook. Now that's... The natural provision. And we're going to see later on the brook dried up. But then he said, I command the ravens to feed you. (laughs) Now that's supernatural. You got to have grown up in the Middle East to understand this one. Or some of you might, I don't know. But you see, by nature, ravens, um, in fact, they are sort of really uh, the superstitious people, when they see ravens, they, they, they really panic and they do all kinds of incantation, you know, because they really feel it's a bad omen when they see a raven. Because a raven is a ravenous bird. They eat everything in sight. In fact, they will starve their young in order to feed themselves. They are vultures kind of bird. And yet God said to Elijah, I said, now Elijah, I'm going to use them who would have eaten you alive, (laughs) to bring you meat every morning, bread and meat every morning and every evening. That's supernatural. 
Only God could have done that. When we moved to California in 1977, we came to a time in our lives, and, and literally, the temptation was, well, I'm doing graduate school. People give money to support people like me. And the devil says, well, you don't have to tithe now. You can just take that money and use it on yourself. And I said, no way, devil. You ain't going to get me to do that. And we stayed faithful. And I can tell you, and I can stand here and my wife will testify that we saw the dollar stretch so far uh, that it's only supernatural intervention of God. But I don't want you to miss verse 7. Don't miss verse 7. After a while, the brook dried up. <laughs> Here's the nat- one of the natural provisions. He said, drink from the brook and I'm going to have the raven feed you. But then the brook dried up because there was no rain. I want you to think about this just for a minute. I mean, Elijah now had just become a victim of his own prophecy. (laughs) He has just become a victim of his own proclamation. Elijah was suffering with the rest of the nation as a result of his prophecy. Have you ever suffered because you took a stand for God? Have you ever suffered because you've been faithful to the Lord? Have you ever taken a stand and everybody got mad at you? I sure have. And I can tell you quite a bit about that. But I want to tell you as I come to conclusions that in our lives, all brooks dry up sometime. All brooks can dry up. Business brooks dry up. Marital brooks dry up. Academic brooks dry up. Ministry brooks dry up. But what God is saying when these brooks dry up is this. Don't be anxious because I'm planning a better and greater things for you. God sent Elijah from a dry brook to a woman that's poorer than he was. God's purpose can never be searched. And if it is, it can never be understood. But it's always for our good. Sometimes God says to you and to me, go to Cherith Brook and hide there. And when you come out, you'll be more than you have ever been. I think the question to all of us that we need to contemplate tonight is this. Are you willing to get in God's hiding program? Or are you digging your heels and saying, God, don't do that to me? Are you so fearful and frozen in place? Or will you want God to take you to his hiding place? Shall we pray? Our Father God, we know your word says that as far as the east from the west are your thoughts from ours. And yet you're so personable that we can touch you, we can feel you. You said you're closer to us than our hands and feet. You stick to us closer than a brother. Father, we thank you even in perplexing times in our lives. They are purposeful times. In the times when we feel hidden from sight. You're working your purposes out to do greater and better things. And so, Father, tonight as we 
reflect on your word, help us afresh to establish firm foundation on who you are and how you work and how you guide and how you lead. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, without whom our life would be without purpose. In his name I pray. Amen.